Uh, yeah, welcome everyone. We're going to start with a short introduction from Rabbi Silber, followed by uh, the chanting of Megillat Echa. All right, we're about to read Echa together virtually. I uh, just wanted to say uh, very, very briefly something about um, the reading of Echa. Uh, we have two occasions when we are reading the the Tanakh essentially uh, at night. There are actually three occasions, but one of them, which is Simcha Torah, then we read the Torah. We we take out the Torah to dance, and once you take out the Torah to dance, it's not appropriate just to put it back without reading it. So that's the reason we read it the night of Simcha Torah. But the other two times that we are reading from the Ketuvim, two Megillot. One is the Megillat Eicha, called Kinot, and the other, of course, is Megillat Esther. And uh, those two days are, from one perspective, very, very different, but actually from a different perspective, they're extremely similar, because they both essentially address the same question. Megillat Esther, the Megillah, so it's a book which never mentions God. God never, now he never speaks in the Megillah, there's absolutely no mention of God, a point that was uh, commented upon by many. The Gemara, of course, famously says, Esther minatora minayin, what is the biblical, where are the, the Torah roots of the book of Esther? And they quote the Pasuk in the end of Sefer, I will conceal my face uh, at that time. So Megillah Esther is all about God's hiddenness, God's concealment, and uh, and the reality of the book is it begins with the court of Achashverosh, it ends with Achashverosh. There's absolutely no sense in the book, at least my understanding of it, that the return to Zion is in any manner, shape, or form part of this book. It begins in exile, it ends in exile, and the issue, essentially, is we are here in exile. What do we do about it? How do we survive, given the... Uh, the culture of, of uh, Parasamadai, the culture of exile, the leadership, etc. And Esther and Mordechai together uh, try to figure out how we live in a world in which God is hidden. That's what the Megillah is all about. The Megillah we read tonight, which is Eicha, also known as the Book of Kinot, the five chapters of Lamentations, Elegies, um, is also about God's hiddenness. Um, that's the lamentation. God is missing in action, one might say. Uh, we attribute many of our problems to that fact. At one point in the Megillah, God is, if God is present at all, it's as, as an adversary rather than as a comforter. So the two situations that the two Megillot address are actually, I would say, virtually identical the absence of God, the hiddenness of God. But the difference is that in the, in, in the book of Eicha, the, the elegies, uh, we don't uh, accept the reality of living in exile. We have an aspiration that someday we will once again stand in God's presence. And that's how the uh, Megillah ends, actually. Ahartzion sheshomeim shu'alim hilchubo on Hartzion, the Holy Hartzion, 
the foxes walk through it. Why have you abandoned us seemingly forever? So we end, actually, the next to last verse, which is repeated at the end of Eicha. Bring us back. So that's a different sense. It's not a sense of this is the world as it is, and this is what it is, and deal with reality, which is the story of Esther. It's a story with a relatively happy ending because we find a way to deal with the reality, not just to survive, but to put in place a plan about living with this reality. But the book of Eicha and the day of Tishabab is different. It's about sadness, it's about what's missing, but it's also about our hopes. And precisely because we have hopes and we have plans and aspirations, precisely because of that, we're unwilling to accept the sad reality. We're familiar with the reality, but we don't actually accept it. And we try to live with these two different perspectives. From one perspective, I think it's very important to accept elements of reality. This is where we are, and what do we do about it? We can't wish it away. It's not going to disappear. The realities and the unfortunate realities are with us. We try to figure out the best way to cope with the difficulties of life. At the same time, uh, it could lead us to forget about our dreams and our hopes and our prayers. So I think Tisha B'Av, the Megillah, the Eicha, is, is about not forgetting the dreams. It's about remembering the promises, aspiring uh, and hoping that we'll see the fulfillment, hopefully sooner rather than later. We ask God to bring us back, to bring us back to a better time some of the mem good memories we have in the past, you can't go back in history, but maybe we can take those good pieces of our past and move forward together with them. So the two readings of the night, the night of Purim and the night of Tisha B'Av, have much in common and reflect two very different uh, and two very important uh, ways of thinking about the present condition and its problems. One is to deal in the here and now, and the other is not to forsake the dreams. Okay, so we'll read the Eicha now, and uh, afterwards, uh, after we finish, I'll give a brief uh, shear, uh, once again, about some of the uh, elements of the book of Eicha. Uh, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for people to unmute themselves and to talk up. Um, okay, so let's begin now with the Eicha. Tarchet 
ויעבר חיל וחומה יחתיו ומללו. קבעו בארץ שעריה, אי באי בלשיבר בריחיה. מלכה ושריה וגויים אין תורה, אם נביאיה לא מצאו חזון מאדוני. ישבו לארץ ידמו זקני בציון, העלו עפר על ראשם, חגרו שקים, הורידו לארץ ראשן, בתולות ירושלים. כלו בתמופת דמעות עיני חמר מרומי, נשפך לארץ כבדי על שבר בת עמי. בתיפה ליל ויונק ברחובות קריה. לימותם יאמרו איה דגן ויין התאבתם כחלל ברחובות עיר, וישתפך נפשם אל חק אמותם. מה ידך, מה אדם אלך, חפת ירושלים, מה שב אלך, ונחמך בתולת בציון. כי גדול קיים, שברך מיר פלח. נביאייך, חזו לך שב ותפל, ולא גילו על עוונך להשיב שבותך, ויחזו לך מסות שב ומדוכים. ספקו עלייך כפיים כל עוברי דרך, סרקו ונהיו ראשם על בת ירושלים, הזאת העיר, שיאמרו כלילת יופי, משוש לכל הארץ. חצו עלייך פיהם ככל אויבייך, שרקו ויחרקו שן, אמרו בילנו. אך זה היום שקיווינו מצאנו ראינו. עשה אדוני אשר זמם, ביצע אמרתו אשר ציווה ממקדם, הרס ולא חמל, וישמח עלייך אויב, הרים קרן צרייך. צעק ליבם אל אדוני חומת בציון, הורידי כנחל דמעה יומם ולילה, אל תתני פוקעת לך, אל תדום בת עינך, קומי רוני בלילה, לראש השנועות, שפחי חמיים ליבך, נוכח בני אדוני, שאי אליו כפייך, על נפש עול עלייך, עטופים ברב בראש כל חוצות. ואדוני והביטה, 
Uzkenihim lo hananu. O denati chlena enenu. Elezratenu havel. Bitsipiatenu, bitsipiatenu, tsipinu, el gohoi lo yoshia. Saduhu tsahadenu, mila chetvir chovotenu. Karav kitsenu, maluya menu, kiva kitsenu. Kalim hayu rothenu, minishrehe shamahim. Al heharim de la kunu, bamid bahar arvulanu. Ruachatenu, mishiachadonai. Nil kahad bishkitotaham. Asherahamarnu, bisilohonich yavagoyim. Sisi visimhi batetom, Yoshevet pieret uhut, Gamalaich tavur kohos, Tishkari vititarihi, Tamafonech batsion, Lo yosif lahaglotech, Pakadavonech batetom, Gilal hatutaich. Zichor Adunai Mehayalanu Avita Uret Herpatenu Nachalatenu Nepal Zarim Batenu Lenofrim Yitomim Hainu Veinab Imotenu Galmanot Meimenu Bethesaf Shatinu Eitzenu Bimkiryavau Al tav arenu nir dafnu yaganu velo nachlanu mizraim natanu yad ashur liso alachem avodenu chatu veinam banachnu avonotehem sabalnu avadim ashluvanu koreg emiadam. Benafshenu navi lachmenu mipne ferba midbar. Orenu kitanur nichmaru mipne zafodrav. Nashim betio ninu betula vare yehuda. Sarim biadam nitlu benezikenim lonedaru. Bachurim tichlau nasau unarim ba'it kashalu. Zgenim ishar shavatu, bachurim iniginatam. Shavat mesos libeinu nefach level nefoleinu. Nafla ateret roshenu oinalanu kichatanu. Alza Ayada Veli Benu Alele Hashku Enenu Al Hartzion Shashamem Shualim Yokuo Ata Adunai Lolam Teshev Kisachal Dorvador Lamala Nesach Tishkachenu Ta'azvenu Le'orech Yamim Hashivenu Adunai Lecha Venashuvah 
חדש ימינו כקדם. כי אם העוז מעשתנו קצפת עלינו עד מאוד. אשיבנו אדוני אליך ונשובה חדש ימינו כקדם. Uh, thank you to our readers. We are going to take a short break and reconvene in about four minutes at 9.10 for our shear with Rabbi Silver. All right, so um, just I wanted to speak briefly about uh, Tisha B'Av and about the keynote. Um, so let me just begin with saying something very brief about Tisha B'Av itself, the day of Tisha B'Av. The day of Tisha B'Av, it's a fast day. It, the Mishnah talks about it as one of the fast days. It's found in Masechet Tanit, which deals with fast days, typically days that are become fast days because of circumstance, the main one being a lack of rain, could be other uh, difficulties, etc. And in addition to those fast days, and there's a Whole procedure about the fast days and there's an order to the fast days they're of increasing severity but there also are sort of public fast days that mark events of the calendar so most of them center around uh, the destruction of the temple there's the uh, the uh, encirclement of Jerusalem there's the breaching of the wall and there's the destruction of the temple temples actually and these are marked by Sarah Betevet and Shivasa Betamuz and Tisha B'Av. And then, of course, there is some Gedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah, and that marks the assassination of Gedalia, and that was the, sort of the final straw, and that uh, essentially leads to the uh, exile of the remaining people from the land. But fundamentally, they revolve around those events main one being destruction of the temple. And these are all fast days. So Tisha B'Av is a fast day. And actually it's an interesting fast day because outside of Yom Kippur, which is in a class by itself, it's the only real fast day that we have. Because a fast day is a 24 hour fast day. The other fast days are Sarah Betevet and Shivasa Betamus, Samgadalia. Uh, not to speak of Tainid Esther, which is actually just a custom. It's not found in the Talmud at all. But the fast days, um, we only fast uh, during the daytime. The fast starts in the morning, as it were. So those aren't really full fast days. The one full fast day that we have is Tisha B'Av. It's a 24-hour fast day. It's very similar to Yom Kippur. It's a true Tanit Sibur. So that's one aspect to Tisha B'Av. That's one or might say one of the hats that Tisha B'Av wears. But then there's another side to Tisha B'Av, and that is that Tisha B'Av is not just a fast day, but Tisha B'Av is a day, of, a day of national mourning. And in fact, Tisha B'Av is the conclusion of what we call the three weeks, which begins with Shivasa Tammuz. And during the course of these three weeks, there are a successively more severe restrictions in terms of mourning morning practices. So that, for example, 
Uh, there's the week before Tisha B'Av, the week of Tisha B'Av. Uh, Ashkenazim have the nine days, which is sort of an expansion of the week before Tisha B'Av. And then there's just before Tisha B'Av starts, we eat the meal, sit on the ground. And the day of Tisha B'Av itself is essentially parallel to what we call Shiva. We know that in mourning, there's 12 months for parents. There's 30 days for a relative who has died. And then, of course, there's the Shiva. There's the seven-day mourning period. And within the Shiva itself, there are great, different gradations. There's the first day, which is the most severe. Day of bitterness. There's the first three days, which are called Bechi and the Gemara, days of crying. And the last days are called Hesvit, days of eulogy. So within Shiva, there are different components, but basically we speak of a, a mourner sitting Shiva. Uh, and Tishabov then is the, is the day of mourning. It's basically Shiva. It's interesting that I believe when I was last year in Israel and observed Tishabov in Israel and we had a whole program there. And uh, I saw in the uh, Edot Mizrach prayer book, might've been Moroccan, I don't remember, that I believe, unless I'm mistaken, that at the end of the evening service, the greeting to the next person is, That's what we say to mourners. So the day of Tisha of itself is a day of mourning. So it has two different hats. On one hand, it's a fast day, and a regular real fast day, severe fast days, with similar to Yom Kippur in that respect. And on the other side of it, it's a day of mourning. Now, the question is, what is the difference between a fast day and a day of mourning? There are, there are halachic differences. There are different observances uh, between one who fasts and one who, and one who mourns. There are different rules. Some are the same and some are different. For example, uh, the, uh, the mourner, in principle, in theory, is forbidden to study Torah. The mourner doesn't, in theory, study Torah. And from that perspective, Tisha B'Av is a day where it would be forbidden to study Torah. But on the other hand, on a fast day, we've never heard of a impermissibility to study Torah, quite the opposite. When the Talmud describes the fast day, part of that day is the study of Torah. The uh, the, 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 the clash between the two of them, I think, is most striking when it comes to, uh, to a prayer. When it comes to prayer, so the, the, the one who's fasting, a fast day fundamentally is a day of prayer. And we add prayers on a fast day. Typically on a fast day, there are additional prayers. On all the, even the minor fast days, we recite what are called slichot, penitential prayers, additional prayers. Of course, Yom Kippur, Slichot, is the major piece of the service, but even on the other fast days, after Shemona Esrei, the practice is to say Slichot. Slichot is the repetition of the attributes of God's mercy, Hashem Hashem HaRachum V'chanun. That's true of all the fast days, um, except for one. There's one fast day where we, at least presently, recite no Slichot whatsoever. And that's Tishabov. The one real fast day we have, we don't say Slichot. And now we don't we say Slichot, but it's actually very interesting that we don't say Tachanun either. 
the penitential prayer that are typically recited after the Shemona Esrei, Tachanun, are not recited on, on Tisha B'Av. Now, there's a very strange reason given for that, as, as understood, which is that Tisha B'Av in the, in the Yuat Echa is called the Mo'ed, a special day. It is a special day, but Mo'ed often is associated with a day of rejoicing, the Mo'adim, Mo'adim Simcha. So the idea is there's this um, tradition that the Mashiach will come on Tisha B'Av. So someday it will become one day, who knows when, it will be at a very happy time. And for that reason, it's argued by many, we don't say Tachanun. Tachanun is not recited on happy days, on Shabbat, on festivals. We don't say Tachanun. But of course, when you think about it, that is exceedingly strange. And uh, actually in the Machsul Vitri, Machsul Vitri is a siddha which was written by Rashi's pupils. And it often contains many of the Ashkenazic, ancient Ashkenazic traditions. There's a different reason given for non reciting Tachanun on Tishabav. Rabbi Salavetik was very fond of this approach. That Tachanun essentially is part of the, is part of the Amida, it's complementary to the Amida. And the, the idea is that on Tishabav, we don't say all our prayers, we leave things out. We don't say Slichot, we don't say Tachanun. We don't say Ne'ila, which according to the Talmud should be recited on a real fast day. We say it on Yom Kippur, Ne'ila. We don't say Ne'ila on Tisha B'av. And why is that? Why are we limiting prayer on Tisha B'av? And we limit prayer on Tisha B'av for a different reason. And that is, because whereas it is true that on a fast day you say more prayers, but the mourner says fewer prayers. And in particular Tisha B'av, one of the verses that are cited from the Megillah that we just read, Satam Tfilati, my prayers have been stopped up, as if God doesn't want to hear our prayers. So the mourner typically limits prayer. The faster adds prayer. So here you have a genuine conflict between the two elements of Tisha B'av. And the question is, which one takes precedence? So I think it's fair to say that for the most part, Tisha B'Av as a day of mourning has trumped Tisha B'Av as a, as a fast day. Fundamentally, the primary way we think of Tisha B'Av, observe Tisha B'Av, primarily is a day, of, a, day, a day of mourning. Having said that, I think it's fair to say that over the course of Tisha B'Av, we change it a bit. In other words, as Tisha B'Av begins, we start with Eicha. And that's certainly all about mourning, and it's certainly about sitting on the ground. And a person that's fasting doesn't sit on the ground. These are practices for the mourner. And in the morning also. In fact, it's very interesting that tomorrow morning, typically the Haftorah read in the morning of Tisha B'Av from Yirmiyahu is recited with the same tune that we say Eicha. A sofa si fame, and it's recited in the, in the, with the, with the Echa Trap, with the Echa Tamim. But when it comes to the afternoon, the Haftorah we say in the afternoon on Tisha B'Av, um, which is the standard Haftorah for all the fast days, Yeshua Hashem Beki there it's recited it with, typically amongst the Ashkenazim with the regular Tamim that we always use when we say the Haftorah. 
So one can see in that a movement from fundamentally focusing on the day of mourning, which is true in the, which is true in the morning, and we say keynote tomorrow morning. I'll get to the keynote shortly. Um, but as we progress through Tisha B'av, it becomes more a day of fasting and less a day of mourning. Another question is, what is the difference between a day of fasting and a day? I'm not talking about the technical differences. The practices reflect something else. What is the main focus of the mourner? And what is the main focus of the one who is fasting? So I'll make a suggestion. Um, if people want to speak up, just unmute yourself and talk up. But um, I would say that the focus of mourning is what is missing. What have we lost? That's the focus of the mourner. What don't we have? And that's the focus. When it comes to fasting, fasting is related to, to, uh, to, uh, to repentance, to tshuva. Fast days are days of repentance. Best example is Yom Kippur, but it's true of all of them. Um, and there is a different focus, not so much on what is missing. Of course, what is missing is important, but the next step is what can we do to, to regain that which has been lost? Or how can we move in, a, in, in, in better directions given the, uh, given the reality? Um, so that's two different foci. What has to do with what's missing? And that's a very important question, what's missing, because I, what we're asking is what actually is important to us? What don't we have? And very often it's, you know, we, we don't think in those terms. We're living very much in the present. So coming to terms with what's missing is very important. It starts with the destruction of the temples and which means what's missing is God, essentially, or the ability to interface with God, or seeing God's work in the world. All that is very much missing. What's missing is, of course, those people that could have helped us see those things, our teachers, those who inspire us, give us wisdom. That's missing. All those things are missing. Um, and we focus in on, uh, we focus in on, uh, not just the temples, the day of Tisha B'av is a day of national mourning. So that's just for beginners, what's very special about Tisha B'av and why, even though Tisha B'av from a technical standpoint may be a, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a major holiday, it's a rabbinic holiday, but I think it's one that is incredibly important for us. It gives us an opportunity to think and also to ask a lot of questions. Um, this particular Tisha B'Av, I think, I just wanted to mention two things about this Tisha B'Av that I've been thinking about, or one I think about every year on Tisha B'Av, and the other, given the pandemic, I think about an additional point about Tisha B'Av. Let me begin by saying that Tisha B'Av, we are thinking about the Jewish people. We're thinking about our own history. We're thinking about mourning for what we, the Jewish people, have lost. And there's plenty to mourn there. We have had a pretty bloody history. And I'm not talking only about ancient history, you know. 
the Shoah was what, 70 years ago. And uh, basically, uh, so it, it, it's very particular in a way. And that's on one hand. But there are two points I wanted to make about Tisha B'Av, something to think about. I'm not here to give answers. I don't have any answers. But I do say the following. I do think the following. It comes into play tomorrow in the afternoon when we add into our prayers a little prayer called Nachet. We ask God in the blessing about Jerusalem, we ask God to console us, to console the mourners of Jerusalem. And the prayer, as was written many, many, many years ago, talks about Jerusalem as an abandoned city, as a destroyed city, an empty city. Nobody lives there. Nobody lives there. Uh, that raises the question, obviously. Uh, how can you say that? I mean, for starters, it's not true. Let's start with that. It's simply untrue. And secondly, uh, maybe worse, not only is it not true, but it doesn't take into account the present reality. I remember being in Jerusalem, and I've been there several times for Tisha B'Av, looking out my window in Jerusalem and seeing an amazing city. I mean, there are more Jews living in Jerusalem today than ever before. Now that we don't have problems every place, of course we do, but it's amazing what has been rebuilt after the Shoah. It's, it's a miracle beyond miracles. And to say nothing has changed in our prayers strikes me as the height of deep ingratitude. So part has to do with dealing with the reality. How do we, on one hand, respect our past and, and remember it? It's very important. At the same time, is it really possible just to say the same words without thinking about the present reality? That's, that's one, that in general, I think about every Tisha B'Av. And this Tisha B'Av, I'll speak for myself, we are in the presence of a global pandemic. Um, and the question is, yes, Tisha B'Av is about our own story, 100% about our story. And there's nothing wrong with that in my view. When someone is, is, is mourning, they mourn their, their relative. And, that has to be, and we all understand and respect that. At the same time, I think this pandemic has made it clear, at least to me anyway, I'm sure to many, that we share so much with other human beings around the world. And there's a lot of suffering at present in all corners of the world. And I think there should be some way to, to recognize that during our ritual and to be aware of that. I mean, the nice thing about keynote is that they are very open-ended and they give us all a chance to reflect upon, again, what, what we are missing as individuals, as a, as a, as a community. Um, it really brings to the fore the reality that, you know, for any number of reasons uh, during the course of history, uh, the Jewish people have looked inward to a great extent, not that the Jewish people have contributed to the world, Jews have contributed a great amount to the world, but I think we have, for the most part in our liturgy and our prayers, um, partially out of perhaps self-preservation, maybe for other reasons as well, uh, it's been very an inner focus. And I think that uh, the pandemic actually, and where we are, I think gives us uh, should give us some thought about, about seeing ourselves not just as Jews, 
but also seeing ourselves as members of the human race and coming to terms with that and understanding that, uh, embracing that, at the same time not denying our own specific history and hopefully destiny, the contributions we have made. So I think that's a, an issue uh, in general. And I think we're talking about the suffering of the Jewish people, which is completely appropriate. Tisha B'Av is the one day in the year in which we have marked off as a day of national mourning. You know, when the uh, Yom HaShoah was, um, was first be be beginning to be observed, there were many people who actually objected to Yom HaShoah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, the reason was that some people felt, Rabbi Salvation felt this way, that, you know, we have a day of mourning and to set aside a separate day for the Shoah, he thought was not appropriate. He thought it should be included in Tisha B'Av. I'm not going to get into that whole discussion and whatever about that. Uh, but, you know, it is a day in which, and the keynote represent this, that we are reciting keynote not just about the temple, not just about the exile from the land, but about, about the Crusades. And it's completely appropriate to, you know, to mention other events, because that's what this day is all about. And the focus is a Jewish focus, without question. On the other hand, I think it, the present situation does, I think, legitimately raise that issue about to what degree we want to see ourselves in our own story to include others in our story. Uh, I think we should do that in general. The question is, and the of to what extent it should be done is a very interesting question I think we should be thinking about. So those are the two issues I wanted to mention in terms of Tishabov. The first one being one that for many years has uh, interested and to some degree perplexed and disturbed me, which is to what degree we deal with the present reality. Can we actually have the same Tishabov? today that we had a hundred years ago. It strikes me that leaving Nachem aside, I mean, I don't say that Nachem, there are other versions of it, but leaving that detail aside, I think the larger question is a very important question. Okay, if anybody wants to speak up or something, please do, like, I mean. Yeah, um, Rabbi Silver, it looks like we had uh, two questions. Go ahead. Uh, uh, one was from, uh, Andy Mendes. Andy, you should be able to, to talk if you want to uh, unmute and ask your question. I don't have a question. Oh, sorry. I may be. No. I think I've, I touched the thing by mistake. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. And that could have uh, one question uh, from Andrew Olkin who asked, should we be fasting uh, for COVID uh, and kind of how that plays into well, we are, well, many of us, I'm sure, are fasting. I mean, the question is, well, the question is, what is the focus of the day? Uh, I would say that on Yom Kippur, which is a very different day, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm typically very into Yom Kippur. It's my favorite day of the year. And when someone says, have an easy fast, I'm, I'm, this is not, believe me, I'm no saint, but I never think about Yom Kippur as a day that you fast, actually. I'm thinking about what the day is about, which is thinking about the past, thinking about all the mistakes, plenty of them, thinking about reconciliation, 
thinking about the davening and its, its complexity and its beauty. The fast day, I the fasting is actually very secondary. You know, the fasting is about that it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of day. So that's as far as Yom Kippur is concerned. It sets it off as a different day. It marks it as a different day, as a solemn day, etc., etc. It is true that fasting is seen in the tradition as you know another way of another way of service. Maybe represents self-sacrifice or whatever it is. Um, you know, so I think there whether in terms of the COVID situation, um, yeah, I think we should be cognizant of it, obviously. Each of us should try to figure out a way to be helpful. Uh, that's for sure. So again, is fasting a way to mark it as a, as a significant? I have personally no objection to it. I mean, this is not my, you know, I don't make those kind of decisions, but I think to mark it off as to, to, to recognize that there's a lot of suffering in the world and that we are mindful of it, we care about it, uh, Fasting is traditionally one way to do that. Fasting, prayer, you know, philanthropy, you know, tzedakah, etc. I think the most important thing would be to figure out ways to be helpful uh, to to others. But uh, it's true that fasting has typically been a, a way to mark something as serious. And you know, I mentioned in my introductory remarks about about Purim. It's what Esther says: get all the Jews together and fast for three days. I'm going to go in there and see what I can do and I can change the evil decree. So there you have the idea of fasting as a, as a religious activity, which marks something as significant. Okay. Uh, any other, anybody has any questions, just, you know, either hand them off to Michael or, or unmute and speak up. Everybody's welcome to talk. Um, let me say something about the keynote as we have them traditionally at, at night and during the daytime. And here, this very interesting, um, I see, I would say a difference between the Sephardic tradition and the Ashkenazic tradition. The, the Ashkenazic tradition, essentially, tonight, the night of Tisha B'Av, has virtually no keynote whatsoever. The one keynote that's found, Zachar Hashem Mahayolanu, which is the first kinah that is recited by the Ashkenazim, is basically a restatement of a restatement of um, of the last chapter of uh, of uh, Eicha. It's a kind of continuation, one might say, or restatement of the last chapter. And the keynote that we have in many of the keynote books that we have at, for the night of Tisha B'av, What's interesting about them is that they are basically not written by Ashkenazim. They're essentially Sephardic. There's one by Ibn Gabiro, there's one by, 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 by uh, Ibn Ezra. The Ashkenazim in general, it would appear, uh, did not say keynote tonight. They said virtually nothing tonight. They said Eicha. They said the book of keynote, but they said not more than that. On the other hand, in the daytime, the custom of the Ashkenazim and was to say many, many, many keynotes. And most of, many of these keynotes are written by these, I would say the poet laureate of the Ashkenazim, who was Eliezer Kalir. Eliezer Kalir was not a Ashkenazi. He lived in the land of Israel, probably about the seventh century. But he was adopted 
by the uh, by the uh, Western Jews, the Ashkenazim, as we call them, as our poet laureate. The Sephardic Jews didn't need Eliezer Kaliyah. They have Ibn Gabiro, they have Yehuda Levi, etc., etc. The Ibn Ezra's and you name it. And they have, a diff for the most part, a different set of, of, of keynote. They do say some keynote at night, and they say some keynote in the day, and there's some overlapping between the two of them, but they're very different. And I want to say something about Eliezer Kaliyah, um, whose keynote are often recited in the day of Tisha B'Av. Um, we have a whole program tomorrow. Um, I myself, when the, many years ago, when, when Drisha first began, I used to just do, I, did, I, I used to read the keynote in the daytime, seven, eight hours straight. We go, and we don't do three or four or five keynotes, but we would study the keynote. And this is an interesting difference between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim as far as keynote are concerned. Let's say tomorrow morning, when traditionally are keynote recited. So I was interested about this. I saw that in the Edot Mizrach, in the actual uh, Sephardic traditions, the keynote were recited right after the Amidah. Right after the Amidah, the keynote were recited. What is interesting, and I'm quite convinced that was the earlier tradition, what is very curious is that if you recall, tomorrow morning, after the Amidah, we take the Torah out and we read the Torah Tisha of morning from the Parashat Bret Hanan, and we read a half Torah from Yirmiyahu. And after the half Torah, after the half Torah, I don't remember if we put the Torah back or not, or the Torah is still out, I, I don't recall. But after the half Torah, we begin to say keynote. So there's, a, there's actually two different traditions about when keynote are recited. And it strikes me that these two traditions are saying two very different things about, about the keynote and their, and their significance. What the Sephardic tradition says, basically, is that normally speaking, after Shmona Esrei, we say Tachna. This, there was a, a tradition to say Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun, Yudgimu Midot. Tachanun is recited right after the Amidah. On Tisha B'Av there's no Tachanun. So instead of Tachanun, in the place we normally would have said Tachanun, we are saying Kinot, as an extension of the Shemona Esrei. And that makes perfect sense, I think. It makes perfect sense. It's where, for example, on the minor fast you say Slichot, on Tisha B'av, after the Yamida, you say, you say keynote. But the Ashkenazic tradition is different, and that is we say the keynote after the after the after, after the half Torah. We read the Torah, we read the half Torah, and we say keynote. And it strikes me, and the keynote that we Ashkenazim, those who Ashkenaz say, are start with about fifteen to twenty keynote of Eliezer Kaliyah. Now, Kalir's keynote, which are incredible beyond belief, they are also virtually impossible to understand. The only way to understand Kalir is to study it. There is no other way. Because what it is, is many, many, many allusions to various Midrashim, all kinds of clever interpretations. 
and you got to study it and you got to see what the sources are and how career is using it and what career is trying to say and the unbelievable complexity of the way it's organized. I mean, it's beyond belief. So the Kalir, probably the most famous of the Paitanim, what Kalir stuff is all about is are things that we study. What Kalir is about is studying, studying the situation. It comes right after you read the Torah. You read the Torah, you read the Haft Torah. Reading the Torah and the Haft Torah are about the study of Torah. And after we finish with that, then there's the custom to read read Kalia's poems and others, which I think the idea behind it is to study it. And the idea of study is, I think, a simple one. And that is that we are mourning on Tisha B'Av. But the question is, what are we mourning? When someone loses a relative, so the one who's sitting Shiva knows what she or he is mourning. That's clear. And then you, then of course, the people come and they console and it's a conversation about the person. You always learn new things. And it's, you know, sometimes there are difficulties, but, but the, the focus should be at least clear. Sometimes people digress to other things, but the focus should be clear. But on Tishabov, the question is, what actually are we mourning? We're mourning something, but what is that something? And therefore, that requires some deep analysis, some very deep study about what is missing, what's been lost, why it should matter. So that's the idea of, the, of, of, of Eliezer Kalir. Kalir is all about studying on Tishab of those things that allow us to understand better uh, what the day is about. The alternative tradition is much less about study, but more perhaps about experience, it's about evoking certain emotions. Um, and that's one distinction between those two. And what I find also interesting, another distinction between the Ashkenazic and the Sephardic traditions is that tonight, the Ashkenazim basically say nothing. They say nothing. The Sephardim have some very interesting keynote, including a kind of manishtana. Um, if you go to a Sephardic synagogue, they recite the Manishtana. You know, the first night of Pesach, the night of the Seder, and the night of Tisha B'Av are always the same day of the week. It always falls that way. And the Medrash talks about that. And the contrast between what happened when we left Mitzrayim, Bitsetimi Mitzrayim, and Bitsetimi Rushalayim, which is a kina, a Sephardic kina that Ashkenazim say in the daytime. The, the Ibn Ezra wrote it. But they say that at night as well. Manishtana, how different is this night? And it's a contrast to Pesach. So that's one of the well-known keynote of this, of this. The Ashkenazim say nothing. And for the Ashkenazim, tonight is a night of silence, actually. And that's actually a very important point, that we can't always talk. We have to learn sometimes not to speak. Uh, to, to, to live with the silence. Uh, so that is typically the tradition of the Ashkenazim, but, um, you know, so that's why all the Ashkenazim actually say at night, what's Ashkenaz is the last chapter of Eicha. The keynote that we say are keynote of the five, the five chapters of Eicha. They are the keynote, we're not gonna say more than that. In the daytime, we say more. 
I will mention here something interesting that Rabbi Soloveitchik used to say. He actually was one of the main people who put Tisha B'Av on, on the Jewish map. Because I remember when I was in his Shia going to Boston, and he would talk seven, eight hours about, he was studying the keynote. When I say the keynote, maybe three or four of them. It took him eight hours, but it was each line by line. And suddenly Tisha became, and, and we at Rishas did the same thing. It's a seven hour program, it's an eight hour program. We have keynotes, we had classes, we had a movie typically, and it's a full day, actually. You feel that something happened on that day. Um, he, 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 he argued, he claimed, that the reason that we say, we Ashkenazim anyway, say the keynote after the Haftorah, and the reason we start at night with, the, with, with Eicha, which is very strange to read the book at night. We don't even read it in the daytime, typically. There is a custom to read it also in the day, but typically it's not done. And what he argued was the following. And this part of his larger conception that he put out there, which I think is questionable in my view, but it's, what he argued was that in general, prayer requires a kind of invitation. You can't just pray, you need an invitation. And when it comes to keynote, he argued, you really need an invitation because the keynote contained within them many, many complaints. When you look at the keynote in the daytime, some of them are very pointed complaints about, about the situation of the Jewish people in the past. Okay, we're not so great. Let me ask you, is the rest, is the rest of the world better? That wasn't really a question. And the point is, you know, okay, but how come we're singled out for all this tragedy? So there are plenty of complaints. And he, he argued that what allows us to complain, among other things, is that others who have come before us complain. The Haftorah that we read tomorrow morning from Yirmiyo talks about, Yirmiyo says, Kirula Makonanot Utzvoena. Call the wailing women and let them wail. The wailing women have seemed to have deep insight into the human condition. So call the wailing women, that's what the Haftarah says. So if the wailing women are called, it's okay to, 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 to mourn. So we follow in their footsteps. And the same thing is true of night. The book of Eichel, which is ascribed to, traditionally to Yirmiyahu, no one knows who wrote it, but ascribed to Yirmiyahu. So it contains within it all kinds of complaints. Chapter two in particular, Re Hashem Abito, God, look who's suffering over here, the little children. So there are all kinds of complaints. So he saw the book of Kinot, Echa, and the Haftorah as giving us a precedent and giving us a, uh, a, 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 a legitimacy to engage in Kinot. And I think the important point is that when you look at the Kinot, I certainly encourage everybody to look at the Kinot um, they're very varied, and they do contain all kinds of statements, some of which are very uh, direct uh, indictments of what goes on in the world. At the same time, there's a recognition of that we're, we're hardly blameless. So there's, there's, there's that as well. So I get to repeat what, at least the Ashkenazic tradition, the night is essentially about silence, and the daytime is about study. And that's one approach. There are many approaches. The other focus, I think, is more about the experience, more about putting yourself in a certain frame of mind and trying to connect to 
what happened in the past from an experiential standpoint, an emotional standpoint. And uh, it's not one or the other necessarily, they're both present, but I think with career in particular, it's simply impossible to understand, understand career, uh, except if you study it. Now, I just wanted to repeat one last point, and I'll make a couple of other points before I stop, and that is, and then if anybody has comments or questions, please speak up. Um, that, again, Tisha B'Av is, and the keynote, you see this, the keynote are not limited to the temple at all. The keynote contained within them, and some very beautiful keynote, which talk about the Crusades, um, some very, very powerful keynotes, unbelievably powerful keynote. And then we have included at the end of the keynote tomorrow, uh, there is a whole set of keynote called Sion. The most famous of them is Yehuda Levi. Sion the great poem of Yehuda Levi, which talks about Sion. And those Sion uh, poems or elegies actually, talk not so much about the destruction of Zion, they talk about its former beauty. And I think that's also part of the Shiva. I mentioned that the Shiva, the seven days of Shiva, the first three days are called crying. The first day is called bitter. The first three are the crying, Bechi. The rest four are Hesped. And Hesped, eulogy means to look back as a kind of appreciation. To appreciate, you only appreciate what's lost when you appreciate what was. So the idea of the Tzion poems at the end, tomorrow morning, at the very end, are about trying to appreciate the beauty of Tzion, what is possible, what, what could be possible, etc. So within the keynote itself, I mentioned the movement during the course of the day, from the morning to the fast day, from looking at what's missing to trying to repair what's missing. Fast day is all about repairing and reconciliation. Yom Kippur being the best example. Repentance. How can we make it better? How can we correct the past? Move in a different direction. So you have that over the course of Tisha B'Av, but even over the course of the keynote tomorrow, there's the movement from the temple to generalizing it, and at the end to trying to remember the beauty, remember the good things. It's very similar shivers that way, I think, a good shiver. You know, very often there are problems, but there are all kinds of issues. But Typically, there, there, were, there, there were good things there. They try to remember those good things and to, to appreciate what we had. And then the next step would be to try to regain what, what has been lost and to figure out those things that have been lost, you know, how do we try to, how do we try to get them back again? That's, I think that's one of the questions. Let me say just a couple of words about Eicha that we just read. And just a couple of words, uh, I'll say two things about Eicha. First of all, the word Eicha is the first word. We have five chapters of Eicha. Chapter one begins with Eicha, chapter two begins with Eicha, chapter four begins with Eicha. Chapter three is very different actually. And there are many traditions actually, and we didn't do this this evening, and I didn't grow up with this either, which is but there is a tradition to, to have a different tune for chapter three, because chapter three is very personal. It's not about the community, it's about individual people. We remember that the suffering of the communities, communities consist of individuals. So we want to 
emphasize that in our lamentations. And it's very interesting that the last chapter, unlike all the others, the, all the other chapters are in alphabetical order. They're all alphabetical. When you come to the last chapter, the Hashem that's not in alphabetical order. But what is extremely curious is that the last chapter contains 22 verses, which the, the, all the alphabetical chapters, one, two, and four, the Jewish alphabet is 22 uh, letters. So last chapter is not alphabetical in terms of alphabet, but it does, by coincidence, it's hard to believe it's a coincidence, contain the same, the same 22 verses. So that's the Eicha. And the three of them start with Eicha. The concluding chapter is not, and chapter three is not. So the word Eicha is an interesting word. Let me say one thing about Eicha, and then I'll conclude with a last thought. And if anybody, please uh, speak up. Question, comment, whatever, more than welcome. We, we, we had a few questions that I yes. can uh, try to, and, and some, of the, some of the folks who asked them may also be able to uh, speak up themselves, but we had a few about uh, how do you think about the balance between, you know, so for example, we have one asking how about Zacharia's broadening the reason for fasting and mourning to the need to continue to strive for a just and compassionate society and kind of including uh, that in addition to the notion of mourning for the physical destruction. Uh, we have a few other questions about... Um, I, by the way, I don't think we're mourning just for the physical destruction. Sorry? I don't believe we're just mourning for the physical destruction. Mm -hmm. I think that let me be very blunt about this. This is just one guy talking. When I sit up at night wondering about the future and what I would hope for the world, I must confess that rebuilding the temple is not on my list. So it's not about rebuilding the temple. For me, and I suspect that for many people, it's not about rebuilding the temple. But the temple is a place where God is present. And living in a world where God seems very absent, uh, that is something which is, you know, which is, I think, very troubling. Um, because one, one, one solution may be that God works through us. So I would say that, yes, I would say that, and the, the keynote contained, for example, the, the, the uh, story of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the 10 martyrs that we read also on Yom Kippur, Saharuge Malchut, we have that in the keynote on Tishabov as well. It's in that physical destruction. These are our teachers. These are people who are spiritual guides, who gave us all kinds of insight. And, you know, I mean, that's part of how, how one lives in the world. So my point about the what's missing, as opposed to what do you do about it, what you do about it is a fast day. What you do about it is, fast days are about making commitments. That's what a fast day is. It's trying to figure out what what could be better. And we're all committing to, and everybody makes their own commitments. Everybody's in a different place. Everybody has different priorities, different abilities, different gifts, different passions. No one stands in the other guy's place, that's for sure. So sure, a more just world is certainly a worthy enterprise. It's a big project. Uh, so sure, nothing I said suggests that we shouldn't be, everybody's got to make that choice for themselves. There are many ways to serve.
That's something that, you know, I believe in, and that's what Drisha actually represents. There are many people with different kinds of commitments who come together. No one's trying to convince the other guy they're wrong. It shouldn't be. You have to understand, different people are in different places. You create a place where people can be who they think they should be. Everybody, hopefully, the study of Torah, we have a sense that we are commanded beings, that we are commanded to do good in some way or another. We're in this world to make it a better place. That's something very central. The particular form that it takes, that's another story. So I would say two things. I would say it's not just about the physical suffering. I don't think that's the center. That's not the focus at all in the keynote, actually. It's about, it's about a loss of, it's, it's, it's about the loss of the sacred. And the loss of the sacred is connected to many things. It's connected to the loss of, 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 uh, of not just God's presence, but I would say human, human dignity, creating God's image. And I think it's a world in which very often, you know, people are not respected and people are in situations where they're living uh, and can't be respected because they live in such a terrible situation. So I think that's, you know, the, as it says, the, as Yeshaya said, I, all I created was for my glory. So to create a world that reflects God's glory, that's in keeping with the prophetic statement. So I, I, I have not suggested what paths we should take. And I never will suggest it. But everybody's got to make that choice. But the idea that we are commanded to try to do something and to deal with the realities that we all face, sure. Well, what other, what, what else, what other comment, Michael? Uh, let's see, we had a few questions. We had one asking about a little more about the potential literary significance of chapter five having 22 verses, but not being alphabetical. Uh, right. We also had another question, uh, more of a historical question about who consolidated the keynote and when they were attached to, to Shabbat. I absolutely have no, I have absolutely, I don't know the historical question. It, 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 it's quite old because Kalir is already writing. Kalir is not the first. Kalir is following Tishabov as a central day. I put this, Tishabov is in the Mishnah. The Mishnah, it's very interesting. The Mishnah talks about Tishabov and Shivasa Batamas. From the Mishnah, they seem almost to be on the same plane. When you come to the Gemara, it's clear that Tishabov takes precedence. The main day is Tishabov. But this is very a very long time ago. And Kalir is writing extensively for Tishabov, so it's got to be really very quite early that it's understood as a a day of mourning that's quite early. The Gemara is clear about this. Tishabov is a day of mourning, that's for sure, and not just a fast day. Um, in terms of the last chapter of Eicha being 22 verses, but not in alphabetical order, I don't know what to say about that, but it, it is an interesting phenomenon, something to think about. What else? Any other questions? If not, I'll just finish with a couple of minutes. Anybody else? We had, a, we had, we had a few more. We had one asking, what did you mean when you spoke about the stage of mourning that entails regaining what you lost? And uh, let's see, did we have any others? Uh, yes, and we had one asking, what do you think the difference is, or where do you think the difference in approach stems from in terms of experiential versus internal reflection? It's very hard to know where these things stem from, and I'll tell you, it's not, you know, for the sake of 
kind of heuristic, you know, for educational purposes, very often we make these very clear, these very clear, clear cut distinctions. I don't believe this distinction in reality is clear cut. I believe that the learning itself has an experiential piece to it. And I believe that it's not, it's not, it's not black and white. It's not, it's a question more of, I would say, focus or a question of more, you know, emphasis. I said with career, um, it's hard to know where things come from. The fact of the matter is that the Sephardic poets who are amazing, Yehuda Levi, Ibn Ezra, some, Ibn Gabiro, my favorite, and you know, they're great, but their diff career is completely different. The Ibn Ezra famously criticized career, but I don't think Ibn Ezra appreciated the genius of career, and it, the genius is beyond belief. The, the, the poets, the Paitonim, like career, are actually interpreters of the Bible and of the Gemara, but they're profound interpreters, and they're engaging in interpretation. I would say they engage in what we would call Midrash, and the idea of Midrash is to, we have a sacred text and the text continues to speak to us throughout the generations. And Midrash is the person living whenever, confronting the ancient text and asking our questions from our experience. So I would say that's the idea of Midrash. The idea behind Midrash is that these sacred texts continue to speak, but we have the both opportunity, maybe obligation to try to figure out how they, how they speak today to us. And we look at the text and we try to figure it out and that's a whole enterprise. I didn't mean to suggest that it's just, I mean, career is impossible to understand. That was the Ibn Ezra's point. He says, when I write poetry, it's very beautiful, it's very simple, it's understandable. When this guy writes poetry, he makes up his own words, it's impossible, so that's the critique. There's, there's something to that critique. But on the other hand, there's something to the study. So it's, you know, it's not one or the other. I believe fervently that Study it has both an experiential element to it, and it's very important. And so is the emotional and the singing and the experiential and the emotional was incredibly important from a religious standpoint. Our temple was a place of song, so it's not, it's not one or the other. I didn't mean to suggest that it's one, that it's one or the other. I, I, no, I, that was not my intention. What, why is this way or that way from a historical standpoint? I, I don't know, but it's quite old, clearly. Um, okay, so anything else I didn't respond to? Uh, no, I think that is, I think if we want to I wrap mean, look, All these questions require much more time, there's no doubt. But it's already I'm five minutes over my time. Let me just conclude with a couple of brief thoughts. Um, first, the word Eicha. Speaking of career, so Eicha, Eicha is related to the word Eich. How could it be? It's like a shocker. These events are shocking. Um, how could it be? How could it be a city that was once vibrant and populous and filled with joy and suddenly it's empty? How's that possible? Things can change very quickly. Eicha, how's it possible? What's interesting about Kalir, actually, just to give you one example of the genius of Kalir. Kalir in tomorrow morning, we have these keynotes. He takes the word Eicha and he plays with Eicha. He has three different meanings to the word Eicha. Eicha means Eicha. Eich, how could it be? Sense of amazement. How could it be? That's one play on Eicha. 
Then Kalir has another kina, where he talks about, what am I saying, the causes. He looks back at history, and he says the destruction of the temple was almost preordained. You're looking back from where we are now, that happens when you study history. You look back at history, how could this happen? And you begin to look back at history and you say, you know something, there were already telltale signs in the past. So Kalir has a kina where he talks about things that happened, sort of we should have been cues that this kind of thing could happen. And the first thing he mentions is the story of the Garden of Eden. When uh, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, and after they eat of the fruit, they realize they're naked and they're hiding. And God is walking through the garden. And God called to Adam. And God said, where are you? Now the word ayeka in the unvocalized Hebrew is alof yud kafe, which is echa. So Kalir, either quoting a medrash or inventing a medrash, who knows with him, ayeka can be read as echa. Echa means... Ayeka means, where are you? Ayeka is somebody, a, a parent looking for a missing child. Where are you? The concern. Eicha, Eicha has a different meaning. Eicha could mean, how, how could this happen? Eicha could mean, could mean, could mean a chest stop. We, 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 we don't hear the voice. Eicha could mean, what did you do? How could you do this? Eicha could mean, how could this happen? How could this happen to us? We have something going so beautiful. How could this happen? So Kalir takes the word Eicha, and the word Eicha, which means how, he suddenly reads into Ayeka, which is, which is written as Eicha. And then, just a couple of keynotes later on, he takes the word Eicha, and he does something else with the word Eicha. Alofiyot Kafe, he says, Eiko. A, how, A, where is the Ko? Where is the kafhei? Now the word ko, of course, is part of the covenantal promise to Abraham. Or the binding of Isaac. And then Kalir has a different thought. What happened to the covenant? What happened to the agreement? What happened to the mutual obligation to each other? Which is a criticism of us, but it's even more a criticism of the, of the, uh, of the divine. What happened? There's a, there's a critique here. So I give an example how Eicha, which is the first word we say tonight, and the dominant word in the keynote of tonight, what Kalir does with it, it's, the, it's a sadness, it's a sense of amazement, how could this happen? It's an indictment. And then it's a recollection of a, of a covenantal past, which for Kalir is not over. It doesn't mean that the, the relationship is over means we've, we've hit a, a bumpy, a, there's a bumpy spot in the road, but it's something that could be, that, that, that could be regained. So this is an example of what, of what Kalir does and how he plays with the, with the text, actually, with what we would call Midrash. That for Kalir and for the Ashkenazic tradition, Tisha was a day of, of Midrash, an attempt to, you know, to, to, to interpret the text in a way that speaks to our particular concerns. And I just want to conclude with a last thought about, about regaining the past. What I meant about regaining the past, you, you, we have before us a text. And the text, Eicha, the book of Eicha, the, the keynote, 
make, a, make points about what is actually missing. Um, it very much reminds me of, our, of the fixed text that we have, the text of prayer. And fixed texts are always problematic. To, to daven the same thing every day, many daven three times a day, the same words, I mean, but, this, but, but on the other side of it, and this is, I'm not minimizing the problems, but what the Amida does is it says, this is what you should be aspiring to. This is what you need in your life, not what you want. This is what you need to live in life. You need insight and wisdom, need good health, need the ability to be forgiven. You need um, to be able to make a living. And you need to be able to live in a place that's secure and safe. A place of fairness and equity. That's what you need in life. You don't need anything else. That's what the, that's what the Amida says. And then the assumption behind this fixed text is, okay, this is what you need. Now you have to strive to, 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 to gain those things in order to live a, 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 a blessed life, a life of service, a life where you stand before God, etc., etc. And I say the Tisha B'Av is exactly about that. The first step is to figure out what is actually missing. What, what, what is missing? What should we be caring about? I mentioned one example. The fact that we've lost so many people who could have directed us or could have taught us in the, in the distant past and the recent past. We lost a lot of our teachers, a lot of our spiritual guides. We lost so many things. And to, be, to have one day in the year where we, we, can ask, we, can, we can ask any question we want, we can challenge God if we wish to do so on Tisha B'Av. Um, and that's the first step. Because until we understand what's missing, we can't then take the next step, which is each of us to figure out, okay, missing 10 things. Let me, let me pick one thing I care about deeply that speaks to me that I can try to deal with. And I'm going to work on this. Let me pick one thing. So I think that's what Tisha B'Av gives us. It's an opportunity to leave the normal routine, the idea of the fasting, it's a different kind of day, and to think about, you know, what really... What's really bothering us? What do we feel sh should be better, could be better? And how do we work towards it individually, maybe with other people together? So that I think is the opportunity that Tisha B'Av gives us, even though I said it's a minor day from one perspective, I don't think it's a minor day. I think it actually is a day of great promise. So let's hope we have a meaningful Tisha B'Av and even more important, have a meaningful post-Tisha B'Av. Okay, so good evening and hope tomorrow we continue and everybody's welcome to join that program and to reflect upon uh, these issues and how we can move forward. Is there anything else now, Michael, or that's it? No, thank you very much, Rabbi Silber. I am going to just give folks a sense of what we are going to have available tomorrow from 10.30 to 12.30 tomorrow morning. We are going to have a discussion going deeper into uh, various keynotes, some of the ones that Rabbi Silber has discussed, as well as a few others that's going to be co-led by Rabbi Daniel Reifman and Rabbi Elisa Sperling. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then have a few classes in the afternoon. Uh, at 1 p.m. we have the impossibility of mourning 
Zoharic Thoughts on Two Millennia and Counting of Tisha B'Av with Dr. Nathaniel Berman. At 2.30, we have On Suffering and Metaphors, Limits and Opportunities with Dr. Tammy Jacobowitz. And at four o'clock, we have uh, God Who Suffers With, Divine Presence Amidst Pain with Rabbi Dr. Julia Watch-Belser. Uh, at four o'clock tomorrow, there's also a parallel session for uh, high school women, uh, The Poetics of Destruction, a text study and interactive workshop led by Shira Hecht Kohler. So we have a full program tomorrow. Uh, that information can all be found on our website. I will put a link to that in the chat where you can register, um, but you can also always go to drisha.org or to our Facebook page to get more information. Uh, so thank you again to Rabbi Silver. Thank you to all of our, our readers for Echa. Uh, call to everyone and uh, hopefully we will see you tomorrow.